open your Bibles or your phone apps to the book of Colossians. If you didn't bring one, there's a red one. That is a Bible, not a phone, sitting in front of you. And we'll be on page 983 this morning. This morning we're continuing on in a series in the book of Colossians, looking at Paul's message to the church at Colossae. And just to give you some context, Paul had never been to Colossae, never met the Colossians, and his connection to them was through one of his disciples, a man by the name of Epaphras. Many believe that Epaphras came to know the Lord in Ephesus and then took the gospel to Colossians. He's mentioned in verse 7. But Epaphras goes and he pastors the church in Colossae. And as he builds this body and teaches this body, what Epaphras starts to pick up on is some false teaching. That the people aren't just believing the gospel anymore. They're falling into old patterns of life. They're falling into old patterns of sin. That they're buying into some forms of idolatry. That they're embracing false teaching. And so on and so forth. And so Epaphras seeks out Paul. And Paul in this letter writes to Epaphras and writes to this church concerning these issues. And over the last couple weeks we've made reference to these. And we've pointed out that Paul, in this letter, writes to these issues, some of which, in fact many of which, still show up in the church at large today. Things like the idolatry of knowledge, thinking that Christianity, our faith, is rooted in knowing the right things, and having the right knowledge, or even believing with some great precision the exact right things, that in the end, knowledge becomes the end. It becomes the goal, as opposed to the goal of leading a life that's transformed by the gospel, a life that points to the gospel and reflects the gospel. That's the point of knowledge, that it would lead us to living out the gospel, not just knowing answers or having the right ones. It's a transformed life that points to Jesus. Or we too could fall into the sin of idolatry of self. One that thinks that I am the most important. That you exist to give me what I deserve. And this points us to a kind of pop psychology which tells us that we are enough. That we are sufficient. That as soon as I can get my mind around how great I am, then I'll really be able to accomplish some things. Or once I can figure out how awesome I am, I'll move past some things. And the reality, the thing that we miss is the more and more and more that I look at me, the emptier I feel. And the only thing that could actually fulfill me or fill me in any way at all is Jesus. That He is the only thing that could be sufficient. He is enough and He alone can transform my life, not me. Or perhaps more dangerously, we, like the Colossians, could pursue a faith that's not rooted in the Jesus of the Bible, but perhaps a recreation of a Jesus that we like, one that we prefer, one that we're more comfortable with, one we can manipulate, a Jesus who will put me first, my needs first, my happiness first, a Jesus that exists to make me happy. As we've worked through these first 14 verses, we've seen Paul begin to slowly and methodically push back on this kind of syncretism 
and that these views that make much of me and much of my comfort and much of me continuing to do whatever I want to do that feels right or meets my needs, Paul pushes back on that and starts to erode the foundations of those kind of thoughts. And this morning as we turn into verse 15, Paul will absolutely crush it. Not by dismantling the false teaching, though he does that throughout this book, but by giving us an enormous, breathtaking view of the supremacy and sufficiency, not of me, but of Jesus Christ. A Jesus Christ who is over absolutely everything and is in absolutely everything and rules over absolutely everything. This morning, we get to lift up Jesus so high. And I pray that we do that every Sunday. But this text makes it incredibly easy. We have a lot of work to do this morning, so let's jump in on verse 15. This is what Paul writes. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now these are the first two of twelve enormous theological statements that Paul makes about Jesus that all will point to his preeminence. And we'll get to that. But you need to know up front that as a preacher, you look at this and you go, do I divide up these 12 and we could spend 12 weeks looking at this? That'd be a way to do it. We're going to take them all in one. So here it comes. He is the image of the invisible God. What Paul says is he is an exact imprint of God, the likeness of God, the representation of God, the full human manifestation of God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And lest you think it's only Paul and the author of Hebrews who thought it sufficient to call Jesus God, let's look at the words of Jesus in John 14. John 14, 8 and 9. Philip says to him, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. What Philip says to Jesus is we want to see God and that will meet our need. Show us God. And look at what Jesus says here in response to Philip. Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now, even at this point, Jesus is saying to Philip, you've been with me a while. Have you not picked up on this? And look what he says, because this is absolutely astounding in the text. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says, if you've seen me, then you have seen the Father. Then this becomes one of the most straightforward claims that Jesus makes. If you've seen me, you have seen God. Do you know why this is crucial? Because there is still a strong wind blowing in our culture that says Jesus was just a good teacher. That there are still plenty amongst us with coexist stickers and coexist theology and coexist thinking. 
that put all these guys on the same plane that thinks that Jesus lived a good life that was worth following, just like Gandhi or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or anyone else you could name. And the problem with this idea that Jesus was a good teacher comes with his teaching. See, that's what throws everything off. You just want to look at him as a person and say, yeah, that's a great model. But when you dig into his words, that's what messes you up. And here I'll point you to the old C.S. Lewis trilemma. That Jesus was either a liar. He made all of this up. Or he was a lunatic. He was absolutely out of his mind crazy. He knew what he was saying, but thought he was saying truth, but wasn't. Or he was Lord. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Those are the only three options. Nothing else is a possibility when you study his word. And Lewis put this argument around the idea that these are the only options. What he says basically is if you've seen me, you've seen God. So the good teacher argument falls out of the window like Eutychus. Jesus was far more than a good teacher. Jesus claimed to be God, acted like he was God, and walked with complete and utter authority as God. We'll see that as we move forward. The next statement is the firstborn of all creations. His second theological statement. And this does not mean that Jesus was born first, as your Jehovah Witnesses brothers might want you to believe. What it means is that he is primary. What it means is that he is supreme over all of creation. In Exodus 4, and by the way, using the Bible to declare its context is always the best plan. If you're not sure what a word means, look and see how the Bible uses it. It'll clear things up for you. In Exodus 4, God says that Israel is his firstborn son. And if you know your Bible, you recognize that Israel is the nation that sprang up from Jacob. That he wasn't the firstborn, but that God is declaring here that Israel was his, that they are his people, that they are primarily about him. And in Romans 8.29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknown, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among the many brothers. What Paul is arguing here is that God the Father foreknew and then predestined those who would believe. If you've got a challenge with that, just look at your Bible for a little longer. It clears it up. Paul says God foreknew and predestined those who believe. And then in the next verses, he says he called them, justified them, and will glorify them. But look back at the end of 29. He did this in order that he might be the firstborn. Now at any point, does that somehow legislate that Jesus, foreknowing all of those things, then gives them the ability to be the first of creation? No, that would be a serious misunderstanding of the text. What it suggests here is that God is showing his sovereignty, his preeminence over all things, and proving that Jesus was primary, that he was supreme amongst all the people. That he was preeminent. And we'll keep moving. Verse 16, And for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And you get the third and fourth statements from Paul. First, Jesus was the agent of creation. This can most clearly be seen in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which is to say that Jesus created everything. And not just the things you like or things you see like snowflakes and hippopotamuses, but the things that you can't see. Things in the heavenly realms. Things like angels and demons. Jesus created it all. And they were all created through him. And fourth, they were created for him. Jesus is the goal of creation. You will find studying your Bible that all of history and everything in it is moving towards one goal in the end. When the entire created universe will all bring glory to Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which means from the most ardent believer to the most passionate atheist, that everyone, everyone, everyone in the end will bring glory to God, whether it was their testimony of his sufficiency The testimony that though they sinned greatly, he was great enough to forgive all of it, or if it's glorified in his righteous and right and accurate judgment, everyone will glorify Jesus. He's the it's the goal of all of creation. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Statements 5 and 6. He is before all things. Literally, Paul is writing here that he is the antecedent of creation, which is to say that he is pre-existent. He existed well before all of it. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... In the very, 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 very beginning, before creation, God is singular, and we got to remember that God singular is still expressed as God triune, because the Trinity in its full expression is always three in one and one in three, so God in his singular is still God in his plural, that Jesus was the agent of creation, that he existed before anything that he has always existed and will forever exist and will never not exist. That he is the Alpha and the Omega and even in our limited scope. That's, that's an understatement, right? It's like we want to make him the number one. Well, he's the zero. And he's the infinity behind the zero. And he's the ten trillion. And he's the infinity well beyond the ten trillion. That he was pre-existent you could preach that for a while and he will exist forever and paul continues to build his argument in his sixth thing saying that all things hold together 
that He is the sustainer of all things. That you and I have breath in our lungs this morning because Jesus is sustaining us. And not just us, but everything. Jesus is providing the fuel that's allowing the sun to burn. That Jesus is holding together the bonds that allow two hydrogens and and oxygen to form water. That Jesus does all of these things, holds all of it together, and He continues in verse 18. Having spelled out all of history, all of creation, and now in verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. That He's the head of the church, which is about Him. It was the plan of Jesus from the beginning. The formation of the church of which He is also the head. And it comes through this eighth statement that He is the firstborn from the dead. Which is to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Now again, we come to this statement, firstborn. Was Jesus the first to rise from the dead? No. Lazarus rose from the dead. Jairus' daughter was risen from the dead. Plenty of people have been risen from the dead. And yet still you can get into arguments with people about why Jesus is more significant than those kinds of people. And the answer is pretty simple. You know, Lazarus died and Jesus brought him back. Who brought him back? Jesus Now, if you watch Lazarus' life, a funny thing happens to Lazarus. Because Lazarus dies again. You get the sense that he's sitting there going, wait a second, I've done this before. I'm going out. Jesus doesn't. Jairus' daughter, same experience. She dies. Jesus, agent, brings her back to life. She dies again. Did Jesus die again? No, when he was raised from the when he was risen from the grave, he ascended into heaven and he still reigns and rules. When it says Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, he is the preeminent one. He's the primary one. And what's that suggesting to us is that in his death, his victory secured his resurrection, secured our resurrection. So that someday we too might rise from the dead. Because he's the first. And when he returns, we will all who have believed in Jesus go back with him. The Bible says that. Which brings Paul to the ninth statement, which in many ways is the climax. That in everything, he might be preeminent. That he might be shown to be sovereign in control that he might be shown to be supreme. And if you wonder how we get there, I would quickly argue with you that the fact that he is preexistent, always existed, created everything, holds everything together, that this is a display of his preeminence. Which is to say, very practically, that there's nothing going on in any of our lives that he is absolutely that he's not absolutely in control of. And that there's nothing going on in the history of the world, and most specifically in your life, that he's not bigger, greater, or stronger than. 
Let's look in the Gospels. I'll give you some illustrations. You see it in Luke 8, 22 through 25. When Jesus stops the storm, you'll remember the story. The disciples are all in a boat. Jesus is asleep. You want to see a guy at peace in a storm? It's the guy sleeping. You want a guy who's not worried about how this is going to work out? You look at the guy sleeping, and yet the disciples rouse up. They wake him, and what does Jesus do? He stands up and looks at the wind and the waves and says, Stop! And what do they do? They cease immediately. Jesus shows utter and complete control over nature. You see his power over disease in Luke 17. Jesus comes across ten lepers. Leprosy would never have been a good disease to have had, but back then I think it had to have been the worst. And not just because your nerves were dying and decaying, such that your flesh would rot and fall off. You might lose an appendage here and there and be covered in sores. I think that's pretty awful, but I think it gets worse when you consider that you'd be a complete social outcast. And these ten that Jesus comes across cry out to him, Jesus, have mercy on us. And what do you think happens? He heals all ten of them. He shows complete and supreme and utter authority over a disease that was absolutely crippling and debilitating. And fascinatingly enough, only one of them comes back to to thank Jesus, which shows us you don't even have to have your act together for Jesus to heal you. You even see God's power over the spiritual realm over the demons in Mark 5. Mark 5, you see Jesus. He gets out of the boat, and he's met with a man filled with demons. The Bible says he couldn't be bound, which seems to suggest the guys were trying to tie this guy up for a long time, and they weren't successful anymore. That this guy was so wildly out of control, the text tells us that he goes around crying loudly and cutting himself, which tells you that this brother is in a really, really dark spot. When the man sees Jesus come up on a boat, he runs to him and falls down. And it's the demons that begin to speak. That's so crucial. Jesus, have you come to destroy us? Now, I don't know what model of spiritual warfare you have, but in the Bible, the demons are begging Jesus not to destroy them, which seems to suggest that he is utterly sovereign and supreme over them. Which, let's push back on that for a second to say when you consider the battle of Armageddon in the end, it's not going to last very long. Because they show up and they surrender immediately. It's not like God is trying to build an army, train an army, because he's worried about it and he's got something to overcome. No, Jesus is going to show up and say, I am, and it's over. It's done. Completely. Absolutely. These demons say, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus says, what is your name? And the demons reply, legion, for we are many. And they beg Jesus not to cast them out of the country. Again, showing his control. They asked to be released into the pigs. And if you remember the story, they left the man, entered the pigs, and the pigs ran off the cliff. And we can't miss how that goes down. Jesus shows up, and there's not a fight. There's not a challenge. They immediately recognize who he is. 
And in fact, if you want a funny story, read your New Testament, pay attention to the Gospels, and you will find the religious people never get it, and the demons always do. They always know who they're dealing with. They always know it's Him. And they bow down to Him. Why? Because He's preeminent. Because He's bigger and stronger and greater than every situation and every circumstance. That's why the Gospels filled with story after story after story after story. Whether it's Jesus feeding 5,000 men and you know, however many women and children, or that's Jesus picking up water and turning it into wine. He shows authority and preeminence over all of nature, over everything. So as Paul climactically brings us to the highest theological statements that could possibly be made, that Jesus is God, that He's the agent of creation, the goal of creation, the antecedent of creation, the sustainer of creation, that he holds everything together, that he is entirely sovereign and entirely supreme. You get this beautiful, grandiose picture of Jesus Christ that will put the Grand Canyon to shame. It's Jesus in a huge way, and Paul gives us his purpose in verse 19 and following. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This, by the way, being his tenth statement. That Jesus possessed all the fullness of God. Paul would write to the Philippians that he was the very nature of God. He was God. He was always God. And in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And he gives you this number 11, that the, he came to reconcile all things to himself through the cross. And so as we come this far through this section, Paul has thoroughly described the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I need you to have this enormous, glorious picture of Jesus on one hand. Because as Paul turns, he stops describing Jesus and he starts describing you and me in verse 23 and this is what he says and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil things and he's not just talking to the colossians he's talking to me and he's talking to you and whether you followed christ every day of your life or for a couple of weeks the bible declares this is true about you that you were one time alienated, meaning you had no God, that you were your own authority, that you submitted to nobody, that whether that was true for you at three, it was just as true for you at 30 if you had not accepted Jesus Christ, and that you were hostile in your mind, which means you did not want to know God. You pushed back on God. You thwarted God. You wanted nothing to do with Him. The Bible says that was true for absolutely all of us, doing evil deeds. We were practicing evil. It doesn't matter if you were stealing cookies or horseshoes or hand grenades or anything else. The Bible would call our practices evil. Why? Because in this huge 
climactic display of God's grace and His glory, He puts you absolutely in context. That you brought nothing to that picture except for sinfulness. Nothing except for brokenness. Nothing except for hurt and anguish. And what happens when you put those two things together? Paul writes in verse 22 that he is now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death. That your alienation, your hostility, and your evil was reconciled in its entirety in the body of Christ. That the entire bill for everything that you owed for wickedness and evil was canceled out in its completion and in its entirety in the flesh of Jesus Christ at his death. That you were completely reconciled and completely redeemed. That you owed nothing that you're completely covered by him in its entirety. What Paul is going for here is you don't need anything else. You don't need to add anything. It's all going to be a distraction. It's all going to harm you. It's all going to push away from you seeing Jesus as he is, for loving Jesus as he is, for trusting Jesus as he is. Jesus. We're completely covered by him, and he continues in 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What Paul puts out is you show up all ragtaggedy, all covered with wounds and sores, incomplete and broken, and because of his death, you now show up before him as holy being that you are set apart, that he's claimed you, that he's adopted you as his son, that he's sanctified you, made you sin disappear, that he's justified you, that you stand before him, not as a sinner in need of help, but as a righteous one who his son has claimed that you are blameless, meaning you can't even be accused of anything. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't be accused of anything before the throne of God and that you are above reproach. Paul continues in 23, if. You always have to circle these ifs. It's a nerdy moment for me to tell you it's a first class condition in Greek, which seems to suggest that the end of this is not... It doesn't suppose that it's in question. When it says if, it's not like if, maybe, if it could go either way. It would, more rightly, it would be considered that we should translate this as since. Since indeed you continue in the faith. Since, Paul writes to these people, since you've recognized who Jesus Christ is and who you are and that he has reconciled you completely through the cross. Continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul exhorts the church at Colossae to understand in full the fullness of who Jesus Christ is and the fullness of who they are and how they are reconciled. 
Because every false teaching, every heresy that exists attacks one of those two things to make the cross insignificant. We tear apart Jesus to make him less significant because we need to add something else. Or we tear apart the fact that you would be considered depraved. We want you to feel righteous and awesome because that makes the cross unnecessary. All of this false teaching existed back then and all of it exists now. So Paul writes to the church at Colossae to encourage them to know Jesus as the Bible puts him out. Not a fabrication. The Jesus who created everything, who holds everything and sustains everything, who's sovereign and supreme, laid it all down, humbled himself to become human, and humbled himself to be crucified in our place. Paul absolutely crushes syncretism in his argument, not by taking apart the falsities of what they believe, but by putting before us an absolute, complete picture of Jesus Christ. So friends, I will encourage you in the way that the Bible encourages us to recognize that as we walk today, there is nobody here that's not struggling somewhere. Can somebody say amen? We are broken and struggling people. We always are. We're struggling with sin. We're struggling in relationships. We're struggling in contentment. We're struggling to be happy. We're struggling with all kinds of stuff. And yet Jesus is sovereign and in control and calling on us not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in the world, not to trust in any of his provisions, but to trust in him alone. That whether or not you're suffering with a debilitating disease like leprosy, he is trustworthy, he is supreme, and he's absolutely in control and will use it for his glory. If you're suffering and you're struggling with depression or being plagued by any number of other spiritual afflictions, God is absolutely in control. He's sitting on his throne that none of it will challenge him. We are called to be encouraged by the gospel, to be encouraged by Jesus, and to know that even in the midst of struggling and suffering, that there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that he is not bigger, stronger, and more powerful than. And friends, you may not feel healing on this side of the earth. And there's just a truth in that. And someday the most right the most real healing we will all feel will be on the day that Jesus Christ returns when all of our suffering and all of our struggling and all of our longing goes away in utter and absolute, complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And until then, we look to Him to be our only hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are our God. That you are completely, completely God in everything that you ever did from the beginning to the end. We thank you that you created us and everything around us. We thank you that you hold us together 
from our cells to our muscles to the breath in my lungs, God, everything I have you've given me. So, Father, I pray for us as a body, a people who are struggling, a people who are trying, that we would gain a greater understanding of who you are. And, Father, of our own insufficiencies, that we wouldn't try to live out our lives and our strength or our flesh, but we'd see that you're the only thing and that we'd look to you, that we would walk in complete dependence to you, that we would recognize it's your power that we live by, It's your authority that we cling to. It's your name that's our hope. Jesus, encourage us this morning in the gospel that though we fall way short, you are more than enough. And give us a great, great, great view of your Son. Father, that as we look to him, we'd have the strength to carry on, longing for a day when it all gets taken away. Jesus, we love you. It's your son's it's in your name we pray. Amen.